This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Waddle and Daub One of the problems with tabletop role-playing games is that they are presented entirely verbally. Well, that isn't a problem for people like us, who are adept at building beautiful and evocative word pictures. But most gamers aren't us. And so, most role-playing gamers find themselves struggling to describe effectively something they can see clearly in their mind's eye. This becomes especially difficult when the other players have exactly zero context for the description in question. For example, imagine the difficulty in trying to describe a forest to someone who has lived in a major city all of their life and has never seen more than two trees at the same time. We actually had to do that once. It was tricky. We were reminded of this recently when we found ourselves trying to describe a group of players' passage through a small village and dropped phrases like half-timbered and waddle and daub. Even thatch got us only a very hazy glimmer of vague comprehension. And we suspect that this experience is far more common than we might have believed. After all, while you may have seen half-timbered masonry manors and waddle and daub cruck houses in movies about groups of bearded grumps trying to off a dragon to recover a fancy magical rock, would you know what they were called? Now, as we've noted before, Dungeons and Dragons is not a medieval fantasy. It's just plain old fantasy. It's a stew of anachronisms, a mix of ideas from dozens of cultures across the globe and as many different time periods. In Dungeons and Dragons, no one would bat an eye to see one person using an Iron Age weapon from the Middle East or India to fight off someone wielding a polearm from the Renaissance. But when we picture the life of the average rural Joe in Dungeons and Dragons, we basically picture a medieval peasant. And that means we expect him to live in an average medieval peasant dwelling. Or do we? If you walked into the average medieval village before, say, 1000 CE or so, you'd probably be very surprised to see that you have, for the most part, been overestimating the quality of peasant housing. Seriously overestimating. A thatched roof cottage would be a step up, is what we're saying. Now, we should note that the Middle Ages were a long, complex period in European history, and different regions developed differently. And as we talk about the medieval housing situation, we can't speak definitively about every single part of Europe at any given time. We're just giving a rough picture of the sort of peasant life that would be more the rule than the exception. The first thing to understand is that our concept of a village is a little off. A medieval village was a very small affair, and it was basically just a place for villains to live. That's right, we said villains. But villain doesn't mean what you think it means. We're spelling it E-I-N, not A-I-N. Though villain, E-I-N, is actually the root for villain, A-I-N. What was a villain? Well, you might be surprised to learn that villain and village come from the same root, and that root is the word villa. See, in Latin, a villa was a country home, a rural manor, usually surrounded by a farm. But to understand how that gets to villain, E-I-N, and village, and villain, A-I-N, 
You have to understand the governmental system that was sweeping through Europe at the time. The feudal system. Fortunately, that same system of government explains exactly why rural villages looked the way they did, right down to why the homes were built the way they were. And they were pretty terrible right up until a stroke of luck came, in the form of a plague that wiped out one-third of the population of all of Europe. Let's take this story one step at a time, though. And don't worry, we'll come back to cruck houses and thatch and waddle and daub. We promise. Feudalism is a form of government based on a system of mutual oaths and land grants. Essentially, the owner of a parcel of land can grant someone the right to earn income using that land. This income-yielding grant is called a fife, or, in Frankish, the word is fehuad, which is why we call it feudalism. In return, the recipient of the fife swears an oath of loyalty, an oath of fealty, to the owner. The details of that oath can vary, but what it generally means is that the vassal, the person who receives the land grant, must support the lord by providing soldiers in times of war. This whole system was invented by someone we've briefly mentioned before. In our episode about paladins, we described Charles the Great, Charlemagne, as the inheritor of the Frankish kingdom. And we briefly mentioned his father, Pippin the Short, and his grandfather, Charles Martel. Well, Charles Martel was the guy who basically conquered and unified most of Central Europe and established the Frankish kingdom and they were all descendants of a family known as the Carolinian family. The Carolinians were the rulers of a chunk of land which included bits of modern-day France and Germany, as well as the Netherlands, Belgium, and Luxembourg. It was one of the three regions that made up the lands controlled by the Frankish tribes. Thanks to his father's efforts uniting and conquering the various Frankish tribes, when Charles Martel inherited the throne, he was the ruler of all three Frankish kingdoms and Charles Martel kept pushing the borders outward, conquering more territory. But the territories proved difficult to unify, and so Martel performed an act of unprecedented generosity. In return for a pledge of loyalty, he granted nobles willing to support him the rights to work huge tracts of land and to keep whatever income they produced on said land. Why? Because Martel needed soldiers. At its heart, feudalism is actually about dividing society into two basic castes. A warrior caste, whose job it is to defend a society and to expand its holdings, and a support caste, whose job it is to keep the warriors on the battlefield. The aristocracy, the nobles at the time, were the leaders of the armies. You just didn't get to be a king, especially in a rough-and-tumble neighborhood like the Frankish kingdoms, unless you were willing to get the heck onto the battlefield and take command of your army. Peasant conscripts were all well and good, but you needed expensive knights and cavalry and archers and all sorts of other specialty soldiers to really win a war. What Charles Martel set up was a pyramid scheme of military support. He granted his vassals large tracts of land. They could use the land however they saw fit, as long as, when Martel needed it, they would aid him in battle. Those vassals themselves subdivided their land and granted the parcels to other vassals in order to defray the costs of keeping an army. And eventually, the land got broken down into small, manageable chunks. These small chunks were centered around the home of a knight or other lord and were called manors. But you might think of them as villas. See? This is getting somewhere. 
But working the land, because income at that time was synonymous with food for the most part, working the land was difficult and time-consuming. Enter the serfs, the peasants, the bottom of the feudal ladder. These folks were granted the right to work individual parcels of land or to work together on large farms. They could live on the land and keep a portion of what they produced, but the majority of the yield was given up to the lord of the manor, and he used it to support his troops, which supported the nobles above him, who supported the noble above him, and so on. And so it was that Charles Martel had a massive army that was supported by all of the folks under him. And that's a good thing, because in 732, a massive Muslim army invaded Europe, and he was able to drive them back at Tours in what is now modern-day France. As Charles Martel's sons continued to expand Frankish rule across continental Europe, the feudal system spread with it. And when his son, Pippin the Short, granted huge tracts of land to the Pope in Italy, the Pope got to participate in the whole feudal thing too. By the end of the 12th century, the Pope had the largest collection of vassals underneath him of any ruler in Europe. The church had a great deal of power under feudalism. For example, when the church got tired of Arab Muslims living in Sicily, the Pope simply granted the land rights of Sicily to an adventurous family called the Normans. The Normans then conquered the hell out of Sicily to get their holdings. Later on, the same family was induced to invade England with pretty much the same trick. The result was that in 1066 CE, at the Battle of Hastings, England was conquered by William the Conqueror, and he brought the feudal system to England. But we digress. The point is that feudal society was essentially divided between two groups, well, technically three, and they actually became known as the Three Estates. First, there was the clergy, they were on top, they had the power. Next, the second estate was the aristocracy, the nobles, the kings, lords and knights, the landowners. Beneath them, the third estate was the serfs or peasants, the people who worked the land in return for the meager living they could scrape, and also in return for the protection that the aristocracy provided. And that protection was actually sorely needed. It was a violent time, and anyone who could conquer and hold land, the most valuable resource there was, owned it. Not to mention the fact that wild animals still roamed the countryside, and brigands and robbers haunted the roads. That said, the protection of the nobility was a double-edged sword. If your lord managed to piss off a neighbor, you might find your lands raided and your home burned, assuming you survived. Anyway, the dichotomy between the nobility who, by the 12th century, were starting to follow the principles of chivalry and the village peasants who lived outside of the code of chivalry because they were, well, peasants. That dichotomy is how we get the word villain, A-I-N, from villain, E-I-N, and village. See, a villain was someone who lived in a village, that is, a serf who lived on and worked the land around a noble's manor. A villain was just a villager. But if you wanted to insult a knight, lord, or other noble, you would call them unchivalrous you would compare them to a peasant villager. You would say they had become villainous. But we digress. So what would you expect a medieval village to look like? 
We weren't kidding when we said that a thatched roof cottage would be a major step up for the Villains. The thatched roof cottage, the one with two rooms, a hearth, and a stone oven, that was the sort of thing a wealthy landowner might live in, the one who actually owned the village. The peasants would live in things you wouldn't even call houses. They barely qualified as shelters. And for the most part, we've had to make some guesses about the actual construction because those shelters have not survived the years. That's because they were made of sticks and straw and mud. The earliest medieval peasant homes were essentially just stick frames lashed together and draped with thick layered straw with a bit of mud for insulation. The entire thing would have looked like a straw and mud pup tent. There would only have been a single room, and at night, that room would have been shared with the family's animals. It just wasn't safe to leave your animals out at night in most areas of Europe. Foxes would snatch chickens, and wolves would kill sheep and goats. So when it was time for bed, the whole family, animals and all, retired to their shelter for the night. Each house was built on the land that the peasant was allowed to work. And apart from these parcels of land with their mud and straw structures, a medieval village had very few other amenities. There would be a church, a nicer cottage for the clergy called a parsonage, maybe a mill, and if the village was particularly lucky, a blacksmith. And that was it. That was a medieval village. At least, that was an early medieval village. And the main reason why peasants lived in such squalor was because they just didn't have time to do any better. And they certainly didn't have the money. Serfs weren't paid for their work. They were simply allowed to keep a portion of everything they produced, remanding the rest to the lord of the manor in the form of taxes to support the military. In addition, as the church gained more power under the feudal system, they would also be expected to tithe to give a mandatory donation to the local church to support the clergy. Even if you were a dab hand at building a house, you certainly didn't have time to build anything fancy or maintain it. You might be surprised to learn that sticks and straw and mud aren't especially durable. The trouble was that the serfs had a very full life. Very full. Producing enough food to live on and to pay off the lord of the manor was worth several full-time jobs. In fact, every month of the medieval farmer's calendar was devoted to specific tasks. January was the time for early vegetable planting and for weaving baskets and spinning and carding wool. Plowing and fertilizing came in February. More plowing in March along with weeding and sowing other crops. In April, plants had to be pruned, gardens needed to be weeded, and children were sent out in the fields with drums to scare the birds away from the seeds and young seedlings. May involved more weeding and more bird scaring. In June, you sheared your sheep and harvested vegetables. In July, fruit was gathered from the orchards and berries were gathered from the hedgerows. In August, the main event was harvesting wheat and other grains, tying the wheat into sheaves, and winnowing the wheat to free the grains from the outer husk called the chaff. More harvesting, tying, and winnowing happened in September. And then came milling and sieving the grain in the September and October months. In November, it was time to butcher any livestock that had to be turned into tasty meat and to smoke and salt the meat to preserve it. And in December, it was time to dig drainage and irrigation ditches so the fields wouldn't flood when the snow started melting in the spring. Throughout the entire year, the peasants also spent copious amounts of time gathering firewood so as to have enough to keep themselves and their lord warm through the winter. And so it was that only in December and January was there enough time for the peasants to really devote 
to their own upkeep and repair their own homes. But then, something wonderful happened. As we mentioned in our episode about the plague, a massive epidemic spread across Europe and killed a third of the population. Why was this wonderful? Well, admittedly, if you or someone you knew died of the bubonic plague, it wasn't really wonderful. But if you lived, things got a lot better for you. See, after so many serfs died from the plague, the landowning, or landed, lords, which is where we get the word landlord, the landed lords had a problem. There just weren't enough peasants to work all of their land. And that meant no income. And since income was what kept them alive and allowed them to provide military support to their lieges, that was a pretty serious problem. So the lords of various manors started to do something unprecedented. They started to offer serfs money to come work their land. The peasants still kept a portion of the land's yield, but they also earned some coin. And with that coin, they could afford to pay for some services. They didn't have to do everything themselves. So a new type of home construction started to spread. Start with a wooden frame, posts at the corners and where walls meet. Then between the posts, drive thin wooden sticks into the ground. Now, between those sticks, you weave horizontal runs of willow or another supple wood. You get this thin, wicker-like look. This woven wood was called wattle, but you weren't done. Now mix water, mud, clay, and dung, and slather it over the woven wooden walls nice and thick. When it dries, it turns into this hardish grayish white plaster-like stuff. And that stuff, which was called daub because the mud was daubed onto the wattle, was an excellent insulator. Then you top the whole thing off with a layered mud and straw roof over a woven wooden subroof. And there you have your traditional medieval house. Wattle and daub walls and a thatched roof. But the peasants weren't the only ones to get an upgrade. See, something else had started happening just before the Black Plague began to spread across Europe. A number of farming innovations had been invented, including improvements to the plow. That allowed peasants to farm much more efficiently and produce more food. That meant more income for the landed lords. It also meant that people had some free time. They didn't have to devote every hour of daylight to coaxing food from the earth. And that allowed people to start to specialize. That is, people could spend some of their free time developing particular skills. And with more money rolling around, people could trade their skills. The trouble was, this money didn't find its way into peasant hands until the Black Plague created an unprecedented labor shortage. Granted, this is a very brief and simplified view, but it suffices. And so, the nobility also began to upgrade their homes. And that's the point we'll end on. They started to use brick, or at least they started to incorporate bricks into their homes. Bricks were sturdy and provided excellent insulation, but they were also time-consuming and expensive to make. Bricks aren't just rectangular chunks of rock, they are baked clay. So to reduce the time and expense of brick construction, houses were constructed of elaborate wooden frames. These frames were left exposed and the spaces in between were filled with brick. Sometimes the brick was plastered over with a daub-like substance called cob, 
Other times, it was left exposed. But this practice created the familiar medieval look of dark wooden frames with lighter bricks or plaster filling in the spaces. This sort of construction is called half-timber construction, and the modern name for the style is Tudor style. Even though the House of Tudor didn't come to rule England and Wales until 1485, and this style started to appear as early as the 1100s. So now, if you're a game master, you at least know what a medieval village looked like, and what wattle and daub are, and what half-timbered construction is. You just have to figure out how to explain it to your players. Good luck. This has been the GM Word of the Week. It was written by the Angry GM and recorded and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can find more at theangrygm.com and gmwordoftheweek.com.